Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and My Time Capsule is the podcast where I talk to various people about the five things from their life that they would choose to put into a time capsule. They can pick anything they like from any time in their life, but they have to pick four things that they cherish and one thing that they'd like to see the back of, thank you very much. Something they want to bury in the ground and never have to think about again. My special guest in this episode is the British-born theatre maker and comedian Jessica Tom, whose alter ego, Tourette's hero, is aimed at increasing awareness of Tourette's syndrome, the neurological condition she was diagnosed with in her early 20s. Jess was born in London and experienced vocal and physical tics throughout her childhood. Her most common recurring tic is the word biscuit, as you'll hear, which she can say as much as 16,000 times a day. Jess acknowledges that her condition presents challenges, but she seeks to avoid self-pity or mockery and to celebrate the creativity and humour of Tourette's. She does not describe herself as a Tourette sufferer, but as a person with Tourette's, or simply as having Tourette's. Tourette's Hero is a way of engaging people with the creative and humorous side of her condition, and Jess dresses up as a superhero for her performances and workshops. Tourette's Hero won the 2014 Total Theatre Award, and her show, Backstage in Biscuitland, was named Best Emerging Company. Jessica is an advocate of disabled people's rights. She says her Tourette's is a source of creativity, and her wheelchair a symbol of freedom. Anyway, as you'll hear, I am no expert on this matter, so I'll leave it to Jess herself to explain, in her own inimitable way. I apologise in advance for my own ignorance, but I hope this conversation with Jess comes some way towards educating us all, and I have no doubt, because I've heard it already, entertaining us. Here is the lovely Jessica Tom, with the five things she'd like to put in her time capsule. 
I read the other day about you. Well, I think most people who know you will know about you and going to the Mark Thomas show, which yeah. sort of, in a way, was a catalyst for you early on. So I'm a big advocate for a way of identifying performances called relaxed performances, yeah. which is a way of identifying performances that take a relaxed approach to noise and movement coming from the audience. But I'm also, we've done lots of work with like Battersea Arts Centre on what would happen, what does it mean to become a relaxed venue and to embed that process yeah. across the whole program. One of the things that I think is often interesting about that is from a performance perspective is you concentrate harder, but also with theatre and with live performance, it is live. I, I kind yeah. of find it much harder to access things like the cinema because it doesn't have someone mediating it. And it doesn't have that sense, that same sense of being able to respond to the audience. And I think if mm. to what draws me to theatre is watching something with a group of people in a room in a moment in time, Biscuit, and yeah. to, to to have rules that deny our humanity or make us uncomfortable or just as soon as you let people relax and as soon as you explain where something hap- happening, it gives them an opportunity to be supportive. If you don't have those, then what people focus on is getting annoyed and policing other people's bodies yeah. and minds. Yeah, and-, and the last thing you want is everybody to watch particularly theatre, live theatre, to watch it as if it's telly. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's not what makes it compelling to me. Uh, Yeah, and as a performer, um, I know, like, every single audience is different. And I think that that's when I started performing, that was something that nobody had really warned me about. And so it was like, oh, these guys are responding in a very different way to the the people last night. And that that can take, like, there was definitely a moment where I'm like, would scrutinise that or worry about that and then very quickly sort of learn that it's like, oh, no, audiences are just different. It does have a different energy. Yeah. Um, and that's not – you. that's that's exciting and that's what makes mm. it interesting. And also, as you know, as a performer, I'm neurologically incapable of staying on script. So every single – like genuinely every single show is going to be different. Yeah. So <laughs> I feel like that, <laughs> that combination is uh, – I just think it, what's interesting to me about and often what we hear people say about relaxed performances, people who haven't been to them worry about being distracted or worry about like it being anarchy. Mm. And it isn't – if you're relaxing the rules, does isn't anarchy, but it does allow biscuit space for inclusivity and for humanity – but it's surprising how many people say, even if they don't have it as an access requirement, mm. they can watch theatre and be still and quiet. They can make their bodies do that. It's interesting to hear people reflect on the, how different the experience feels or how much more comfortable it feels to know that you can, you know, nip out. Yeah. If you need the toilet, you can go. Like, there's nothing more certain to make you need a wee than to sit in a theatre and be like, it's a 90-minute show, no intermission, no readmission. It's like... It's and true. That, it's like, I challenge anyone, Biscuit, not to immediately need to go to the toilet at the moment they're told that. So um, yeah. I think just, like, those rules are barriers to some people, mm. but they're also, there can be other ways of watching and enjoying art. Yes. My grandson is autistic. And uh, and so he's been to relaxed performances and I enjoy oh. doing them. Of course, he's only been to see me do pantomime. Yeah. But it's really good fun Fair. to do pantomime. You yeah. you calm everything down. You bring down the level of the noises. You don't have great big explosions. The, the lights stay up in the audience. So, in fact, you can see all the kids much better and, and because it's sort of an, an involved thing. They become Biscuit. more involved, I think, that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My sister went to a relaxed pantomime um at Christmas, mm. and her, afterwards she was saying, like, 
why aren't they like surely pantomime by default should be relaxed yeah but yeah i think that it's interesting the thing about pantomime and relaxed performance one of my frustrations biscuit with relaxed performances are the sort of cultural curation that happens around them and like what work is and isn't considered appropriate or Mm. like isn't made accessible to disabled audiences and that was one of the things that definitely drew us to you know if you can do a relaxed Beckett play you can you can make anything relaxed at that point yeah quite. <laughs> <laughs> lots of venues will say oh we're really interested in making our our work accessible doing a relaxed performance but we just haven't had the right type of show yet uh, and I right. really like to challenge that idea mm-hmm. about that there is because everybody should have should have access to a range of work and to yeah. be to watch challenging work but not compromise their identity or body or mind or well-being yeah absolutely and there are so many conventions that we accept in theater that are strange if you analyze them for example it's perfectly all right for people to roar with laughter individually if somebody on their own starts laughing you're quite pleased about it when you're on stage but we allow that convention of that sort of thing if you hear sobs from people when you're doing a sad play then you go that's all right but actually isn't it weird that we accept Hedgehog. that involvement of people? Biscuit, it's a, and it's a, it's a, it isn't the issue of there, but it's a deeper issue as well. Because um, that I think as a society, Biscuit, we've been conditioned to understand and to expect that attention and focus looks a particular way. That it mm. is always like it, to show attention is to be quiet and to be still. Biscuit, um, and actually for lots of people that is not the way that they would concentrate or attention looks different for different bodies and minds. Yeah. Trust me, if I'm being still or quiet, biscuit, all my biscuit, all my energy is going into controlling my body yeah. and I'm not listening to anything you're saying. Biscuit, <laughs> if I'm able to, and it's, you know, I think that, that, that that's something that gets established really early on within education systems. And I think that it, mm. it means that we shape the world for this normative, idealized body and mind mm. that doesn't really exist. Um, and theater definitely is definitely one of the spaces that that's been sort of ramped up and biscuit and as a as a young person going to theatre that it was it was some of those rules that made it feel like it wasn't a space that I could be in mm. um uh biscuit and uh yeah and you sort of talked about that mark I was really torn about whether to put the mark thomas experience in as a as a moment to cherish yeah. because actually that that was a really difficult thing to experience to be asked to move, partly because because of the t- my, the biscuit my my ticks. For anybody who doesn't know, biscuit. they asked you to move to a soundproof booth, didn't they? Yeah, they did. So I said, yeah, basically, I'd, yeah, biscuit, and, I, and that was after you know I'd been in touch with Mark beforehand. I'd been in touch with the theatre. He'd introduced me to the audience. Of it felt like we'd done everything right, and still at the interval, I was asked to move to yeah the the sound booth at the side of the stage and it was behind glass and it was it was um extreme rambling which was a show about him walking the palestinian separation barrier so it was about segregation and it was then it it was a very weird experience and i think that and it was a very distress i I found that really upsetting and i I sobbed in this sound booth watching the rest of the show oh lord and in that moment i promised myself that i was never gonna set foot in another theater but actually interestingly that word, that turned out to be the moment that actually was transformational for me and was a, a moment where I was so the options were to move away and never set foot in a theatre mm. or to occupy the only seat in the house I knew I wouldn't be asked to to leave which was on stage so and that was <laughs> <laughs> ultimately what I was supported to do and, yeah. and Mark's response was really interesting and we've had Mark's been incredibly supportive of me and of Tourette's Hero more generally mm. but also it's really interesting that Mark does relaxed performances and and other accessible 
provides other access requirements for every one of his shows now. And it's like that, it feels like he definitely was really thoughtful in his response to that after, after the event. Yeah, absolutely. I think if you, as the performer, you would be very upset to find out that that had happened in your show, I'm sure. And I think what, what, because I felt like we'd done everything right. The one thing that we hadn't done, and the one thing that I encourage venues to do when I'm Biscuit, working with them or training them now, is to do that what if. What if somebody complains? What's the plan that doesn't then, that responds to that, that doesn't make, put pressure on individual front of house people or managers, Mm -hmm. like, to manage that situation. Like, if you've thought about it and planned for it in a way that makes everybody feel confident, that's a very, you're much likely to get Biscuit decisions that are more thoughtful than yeah. if people are responding in a pressurised situation. Yeah. And, and you know, that that was a really, it was a really distressing experience. It, it made me feel like I, like it made me feel very judged and it made me feel like I don't belong, I can't be in this space and that mm. my right to exist and to enjoy theatre and culture is always conditional on it not being disruptive to other people. Yeah. Um, and that, that wasn't the fault of the person who was in that position who had to come and speak to me about that? I think it, the, the the thing that hadn't happened was that planning and that thought. And I think that one of the things is that people just don't. There are lots of invisible barriers. Because there are barriers like people wouldn't necessarily understand that the that the rules around how we enjoy theatre or cinema or would be things that would actively prevent people from participating yeah. but they are and so I'm really as an artist, biscuit, and as a performer, biscuit. I'm really drawn to those barriers mm. and to making them visible in funny playful ways and to biscuit suggesting uh solutions to them and so <laughs> that's that's uh, biscuit that's really how i became a performer was because i couldn't safely be in an audience brilliant Fuck, well I, I mean it's not just about theater i've talked about theater but of course it's the whole it's society those yeah, walls biscuit. are there all the time with my grandson at the Hedgehog, moment biscuit. going through this situation where it's made very clear to people that it's important that he knows what's coming up because of his autism, mm. he gets very frustrated if he doesn't know what's going to happen. Hedgehog, so you try to yeah. give him a schedule, as it were. Yeah. And when that changes, he gets very upset by it. So yeah. that is possible Biscuit. for all sorts of organisations to organise. Yeah. But they yeah, yeah, constantly yeah. forget to do it. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. They're just simple things, like you say, well, you're only disabled in the sense of not being able to enter a building if they don't provide proper access. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that that's that you've just articulated something that's called the social model of disability, right. which is an incredible and for me has been a sort of transformational thing to learn about. And that basically that was a so the social model was developed by disabled people. Um and in response to more traditional ways of thinking about disability that take a more medical or charity approach, that see someone as being disabled because their body or mind is impaired in mm. some way. And that puts all of the emphasis on what makes someone disabled on the conditions that they have. The social model... Yes, if we could just take away that condition. It fixes that... It it focuses on fix or cure or pity or the benevolence of non-disabled people. The social model says it's normal for bodies and minds to work in different ways. And for some people to have impairments and others not. Mm. What's disabling is a failure to consider that diversity of body and mind in the way that we set up society. Absolutely. So... You know, and, and often you can explain that using, like, as you uh, you sort of did, using very environmental examples. Mm. So, if a building is surrounded by steps um, and has no ramps or lifts, as a wheelchair user, it's not my legs or my chair that is the barrier. No. It's the steps, <laughs> and there are solutions to that. It can be harder to explain other types of barriers, like yeah. you know, the sort of expectation about sound, but they are as real. So, for example, if I can't phone up and independently change my 
uh, talk to my gas supplier about my uh, my energy prices or my energy bills uh, because they've got an automated phone system that's not calibrated for biscuits. Yeah. It's not the biscuits that are the problem. <laughs> it's the fact that they have a system that assumes everybody is able to speak fluently in a particular <laughs> way. And so uh, I think biscuit, and as someone who experiences chronic pain or en- energy-related barriers... It's like the, in the art sector, the assumption that everybody like or works really long days or sends emails late into the night, those are those are barriers. So it's like it's in, that's the social model can be applied to lots of different things. And and where the exciting thing about that biscuit is that when you think in that way, when you consider difference at the start of a process and at every stage of a process, mm. we can make less disabling spaces, systems, and attitudes. Yeah. Biscuit and and that then I'm not the problem. Your grandson is not the problem. Nope. We don't need to change ourselves or our bodies, but we can be part of changing the world that we live mm-hmm. in. And and that, you know, it's not it's not perfect as a way of thinking, but it is it is for me, it was it was really transformational. When I really connected with that way of understanding disability. And that's why I say I'm a disabled person, because I'm not disability isn't something I carry around with me. I am more or less disabled and different circumstances and environments mm-hmm. depending on how they set how they're set up biscuit no. cats oh jess god i you know i i can see how your biscuit. performance F- would work and how how brilliant it must be Hair i have chunk. to say the moment when you said biscuit deliberately biscuit. a moment ago was F- absolutely fantastic oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, <laughs> it's so brilliant Biscuit hedgehog. Yeah, well, one of the things that one of the things that I do want to talk about and I do cherish is adventure playgrounds. And I've worked in playing with children for a long time. But one of the things I have to repeatedly clarify at biscuit time was that it was the kids were going biscuits for real. I was like, yeah, biscuit, biscuits for real. (laughs) So um, yeah, I was I was definitely in context about you know once a day uh, at biscuit time. Hedgehog cats. (laughs) Yep. Fantastic! It's the watch that stopped that's right twice a day. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Biscuit. I, I, I had a happy Christmas tick for a long time as well, and it was that was very awkward in July, but like totally in context in December. So um, people thought, how nice of her. <laughs> I say I did said happy birthday a lot, and that was that's quite funny because you never know if you're gonna no. you're gonna actually. People go, how did you know? Biscuit. Yeah. Yes. Well, what's more, what's more funny is that you would I would say happy birthday, and then everybody else would panic that they'd forgotten someone's birthday and it's like nah. <laughs> <laughs> oh how brilliant Hedgehog. right okay well let's explore Cat, the things it. that you've chosen Jess and see what they are yes and see where it takes us lovely so what's your first item so my first item um that I'd like to put in the time capsule is Liz Carr uh in a bin so <laughs> Liz <laughs> okay. Carr in a bin biscuit Liz Carr is a amazing disabled um actor and activist biscuit um lots of people might know liz from her performance as clarissa mullery in silent witness mm-hmm. um she was in that for many years biscuit liz is a comedian and performer and actor and is was definitely part, what key to my introduction to the disability art scene it was seeing disabled artists like liz that biscuit challenged my own preconceptions about what was possible for me and made being a performer feel like something that I could do. Biscuit, mm. um, a few years ago, we made a, a documentary about a production of Not I, Samuel Beckett's play, Not I, that we were doing, and it was called Me, My Mouth and I. <laughs> Biscuit, and it was a bit documentary for BBC Two that explored the process and the politics behind us wanting to do a presentation of that work. Biscuit, Not I is um, a very short 
complex uh, monologue. Biscuit is delivered by uh, a mouth in a darkened room. Uh, it's very fast. It's very intense. It's very repetitive. Biscuit. And it's about a, uh, the character of Mouth who doesn't say I, doesn't recognise her own voice. And it was something that really resonated with me because as Biscuit, as someone who has had to learn to live with Biscuit, ticks and words and a voice that I don't always recognise, mm-hmm. um, uh, it felt... I was naturally drawn to it. And then when I read it, there were loads of things, loads of lines in it, Biscuit, that just resonated with me so deeply. Yeah. So we we did a presentation of Not I, all of which were um, relaxed performances. So take a relaxed approach to sound and movement in the audience and think about embedding access um, at every level for mm-hmm. audience and performer. And it was a bilingual performance in in English performed by me and in British Sign Language performed by an amazing British Sign Language performer, Charmaine Winwell. Um, Biscuit. And so we took this production of Not I, um, but we also made this documentary about it. And as part of that process, I interviewed um, Liz Carr when we were both in giant oversized dustbins. Um, <laughs> Biscuit. Um, very, and it, Beckett. Uh, very Beckett. Very Beckett. It was a Beckett reference because there's another <laughs> Beckett uh, play called Endgame, which mm. uh, Beckett loves uh, disabling his characters, impairing his characters. And, and, in, and in Endgame, he does that by putting two of them in a bin, separate bins. <laughs> yes. um, and so Liz and I were in separate bins um, and we, we did this interview. And I think the first thing is that it felt really exciting to talk to Liz about about disability culture and about performance at a point where I was taking on a sort of a, a really challenging role and because this had been so important in my journey to even thinking that that was a possibility. Mm. It was also, Biscuit, because we were, we were the production company, Tourette's Hero was making the programme and I don't think, Biscuit, a non-disabled led production company would have ever asked Liz to do an interview in a bin. <laughs> um, so I was like, there was some, it, it was visually brilliant. And also I like, I liked the fact that it was a, it was a cheeky ask and she responded uh, enthusiastically and positively. Yeah. And we had to both be sort of handled into these bins. I mean, it's quite a, like getting two wheelchair users into giant bins in a sort of warehouse to film was like, <laughs> It was a, it was a, it wasn't delicate. It was a sort of, (laughs) um, and then we had this conversation, Biscuit. And as part of that conversation, Biscuit, um, we realised that what, what felt really radical about that conversation, Biscuit, wasn't that we were in dustbins. What was radical, Biscuit, was that there were two disabled women on screen at the same time. Biscuit. Uh, Yes. And because we can't, we couldn't even travel on buses at the same time. It's like single file on the bus. So we can't, we can't be in a space it's not easy always to be in a space together um with other wheelchair users and certainly in terms of television often there's this idea that you know you 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 have one disabled person but you know you would never have two (laughs) and so it felt really so what felt and it was it was funny it's like we're sitting here in bins and we're talking about what it feels like to be a disabled woman and to be a disabled artist and how sometimes that does make you feel like rubbish. It does sometimes make you feel left behind or discarded. Also, like from a very technical point of view, Biscuit, our roots into lots of cultural spaces is via the bins because often the accessible route will be (laughs) round the back via the bins through the kitchen. I've taken some really complicated routes to get into (laughs) venues, particularly in Edinburgh. Biscuit, but um, (laughs) the... It was amazing on on a lot of levels and it felt really and it felt really exciting to be to be making something with another disabled artist and for us to be able to 
to change, to not complain about that situation, but to actually demonstrate change and to make that visible. Yeah. Biscuit um, uh, and... And I, I like. I think one of the things that's really powerful is to see disabled people talking to each other. And you get there's often the pressure as a disabled artist and a dis- disabled performer, biscuit, to be very educative, to sort of educate non-disabled people, and to assume that you're speaking to a predominantly non-disabled audience. Yeah. There's something amazing when you get disabled people talking to each other <laughs> that cuts out a lot of that like educational like element but the sort of explanation you have to do biscuit. for me exactly biscuit yeah. biscuit exactly and you get to truth and you mm. get to you get to the interesting bits and you get to the nuanced bits and that feels exciting to me and i feel like that's totally important for non-disabled people to see that yeah. and bear witness to that and to understand that but it's also it is different talking to someone who has a shared lived experience to talking to someone who doesn't mm. biscuit cats and particularly talking about the accumulative impact of some of those barriers. And it's like, on its own, going in via the bins once isn't a big deal. But it's like, if you have to do that every single time and you have to do that when you enter all sorts of spaces, mm. the messages that our environment send us is that you're not valued, you're not thought about, you're not welcome. No. Um, and we need to change what I'm really keen on doing is biscuit working with particularly cultural spaces, but all public spaces, to change those messages mm. so that disabled people, and particularly disabled children and young people, are getting the message that they are thought about, that they are valued, that they're welcome, and that they have a really important contribution to make. Yeah. Biscuit. Yeah. Cats. Fuck a goat. There's a scene in Not I that I find really interesting. Biscuit, and it's Biscuit. It's a scene about Mouth, the character, Biscuit, going to a supermarket. Biscuit, and I think Beckett is using that to show mouth in a normative space and uh she doesn't speak to anyone she just hands in the list uh, and the bag uh not so much as goodbye and like someone goes and um does her shopping for her gives her the bag she pays for it pays and goes and doesn't doesn't speak to anyone and sometimes people point at that and be like oh look how isolated it is she doesn't even speak to anybody when she does shopping i read that scene and was like I saw her community meeting her requirements, helping her have, like, doing things in the way that she needed to do, making sure she had food. It's like just because it is a different way of shopping Mm -hmm. to how, to biscuit what people might have expected, doesn't mean that it's less, that that it isn't valid. Biscuit, and ultimately, as disabled people, we are only as isolated as our communities allow us to be. Yeah. And the thing that feels exciting about, um, about that scene, or feels particularly relevant about that scene, is I don't think I've seen a single Tourette's documentary, Biscuit, that hasn't filmed, that doesn't show a scene of someone shopping. And I think that they that, that they, they do that for the same reason, Biscuit, that Beckett is doing it there, that's showing an unusual mind and body in a normative space, in a mm. space that we're like familiar with the rules, and look at this way that this body or mind, this person is breaking those rules. So when we made Biscuit, Me, My Mouth and I, I was like, no, no supermarket scenes, no library scenes. Biscuit, and then accidentally I interviewed another person with Tourette's in a supermarket. <laughs> Biscuit, and then I also, I feel like I was tricked to going into a library. Biscuit, because we went to look at a Beckett, original Beckett manuscript um, with a Beckett scholar in, in Dublin. Mm. And it was only when I was in this amazing, like, library that looked like something out of Hogwarts or whatever. And I was like, I was like, oh, you've got, I said, 
no libraries. <laughs> <laughs> so literally every documentary about Tourette's um, still has a uh, shopping or a library scene, yes. even my own, despite my very clear stipulations. Biscuit, but it's strange, cut. isn't it? If you ask somebody, what is Tourette's? They will automatically say that Tourette's so, is somebody involuntarily swearing. Biscuit. And that's not yeah, the case, biscuit. is it? No, that's that's a myth. That's a stereotype. That's not the definition of Tourette's. In fact, I looked it up. I looked it up because biscuit. I thought that was the case. And in fact, that's a thing called uh, coparalia. Yeah, yeah, coparalia. It is coparalia, isn't it's, it? Yeah, coparalia. I never had the biscuit. There's a lot of lalias in um, <laughs> Tourette's. A bit like there, and there, some of them are also present uh, in autism. So echolalia. Yeah. Um, Copperpraxia, so which is that's physical, isn't it? Yeah, that's involuntary. You flick V's at people, sticking my finger up at you right now as a, as a <laughs> fuck uh, single finger. Yeah, my <laughs> tends to be a, a single single finger square. But, but um, to, so Tourette's is a neurological condition, and mm-hmm. it and it's surrounded by myths and stereotypes. So lots of people think of it as a swearing disease. In fact, only ten percent of people with Tourette's have coprolalia, which is an element that's present in for, for some people with Tourette's. Right, um, as is echolalia, so repeating other people's sounds or movements, and then mm-hmm. the. The physical versions of both, so copopraxia, making involuntary movements or gestures, and echopraxia, making um, copying other people's movements or gestures. Right. Um, biscuit, and then there's palilalia, which is repeating your own speech. Mm. Um, biscuit, and there's lots of other elements. Like Tourette's is a, it's a like fascinating and mix of. Um, I mean, brains are brains are weird, and I know that. I live that every day. Well, we all do. We, it, you know, yours shows itself more, but Hedgehog. I have Biscuit. a very weird brain. Um, but that, and often when you when I sort of when you look online for the sort of description of Tourette's, it will talk about you know involuntary uh, movements, so mm-hmm. involuntary motor tics and involuntary noises, um, vocal tics. Yeah, um, biscuit. But actually, my sister introduced me to a definition, Biscuit, in the Oxford Handbook of Clinical Medicine, Biscuit, and it was the first time I'd read a description of Tourette's that really resonated and was like, ah, oh, that's the Tourette's I recognise. And it describes Tourette's as um, occasionally obscene verbal ejaculations and gestures. There may be a witty, innovatory, phantasmagoric picture, Biscuit, with mimicry, antics and playfulness. And I was like, yeah, that's, Biscuit, that's the Tourette's I recognise. Biscuit, yeah, And that Biscuit, sounds fun, of, doesn't it? <laughs> Biscuit. Well, there's a strong element for lots of people with Tourette's, um, of oppositional ticks and impulses, which essentially, Biscuit, means doing the opposite of what you would want to or should do, mm-hmm. doing the worst thing in any situation, Biscuit. And, not, you know, Biscuit, I often give examples that are quite funny, like shouting bomb in airport or yeah. um, Biscuit telling people what I got f- for Christmas. But it runs it runs really deep. And it's like, I think it's also the reason when I'm, when I'm tired, I find it really, I find it, really hard to like I can't stop um biscuit and the uh, you know if there's something hard or sharp I will be drawn towards mm-hmm. it um and I think that biscuit and also like when I've had an argument with someone the moment it's resolved biscuit it will be oppositional impulses and oppositional ticks that say something really provocative <laughs> at the moment that you've just hit you've just met you know yeah. resolved something and I think that biscuit I think that those often the things that people just get assume are difficult about life with Tourette's are really not they don't focus on the right things and that's mm. true in fact as you know in lots of elements of being a disabled person like lots of what people assume will be tough is not the bits that actually really are and so the thing like swear involuntary swearing biscuit I'm one of the 10% of people who does have rude tics biscuit but you know this that's that's 
That's it. Not they don't really present many challenges in my life. Oppositional impulses and sort of ticks that affect my mobility and affect my my safety, mm. they have a much more profound impact. But with creative thinking, there are, you know, that's also my reality. That's the body that I'm in. And you don't often disabled people are are spoken about or made to comply. People people will say to me, oh, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't live like you or you're overcoming this. And all of those narratives, mm. as, firstly, assume that you have another choice. We have the, you know, we have the bodies and the minds that we have and we have to find ways to accept and utilise them and work with them. Yes. Um, but actually, the process of t- creating Tourette's Hero Biscuit 12 years ago now, Biscuit was a process of allowing myself to think about something that I'd only ever really thought about negatively before, that I used to find really upsetting to talk about, that I didn't have biscuit, the language or confidence to explain to other people. Allowing myself to think about Tourette's and the impact that it had on my life, rather than ignore it or minimise it or pretend it wasn't happening, try to fit in, has Mm. been more powerful than anything I could have ever imagined. And the sort of, the really important, like I had this conversation with my colleague and the co-founder of Tourette's Hero, Matthew, he said something to me, just a sentence that changed everything. And he described Tourette's as a crazy language-generating machine <laughs> and told me that not doing something creative with it would be wasteful. Yeah. And I don't know why, but I was able to hear that in a different way, it captured my imagination in a slightly different way and took root. And over time, I've come to understand that actually Biscuit having Tourette's gives me access to a spontaneous biscuit creativity mm. biscuit that I wouldn't otherwise have access to. Um, for biscuit, and it's definitely sometimes for something that we biscuit utilize and draw on in performance. And, you yeah. know, biscuit, I feel really privileged sometimes. I am not someone who has to worry about forgetting my lines or awkward stages, <laughs> awkward silences on stage. No. Biscuit, because there's, there's always, biscuit, my brain will always fill in those gaps. Biscuit, fuck, often with goat sex. Goat sex. <laughs> <laughs> fuck a goat. Catch up. Brilliant. Biscuit. I mean, it's funny because you say brains are strange biscuit. things, but actually I think Hatch- brains are surprisingly fuck. similar. If you go deep into your own thoughts and yeah. you go back and you remember yourself, we all have that Hatch- instinct to say the wrong thing at, the, at certain biscuit. moments it's absolutely in everybody's biscuit, brain yeah, but, but we're taught to yeah. suppress it and you have the ability to suppress it and we it. have I the think ability that, exactly yeah whereas biscuit. you can't biscuit yeah i can't sometimes people will say oh biscuit oh you know you don't have a you don't have an awareness of danger and it's like actually no i have a really good awareness of danger i have yeah. a really really refined understanding of what's safe and dangerous for me and what's risky um what i'm not very good at is staying away from danger the, the, huh. the, my my body is drawn towards those things mm-hmm. and so that's the bit that's tricky um my sister said to me <laughs> said to me once she's like oh, i like to think that your that your brain isn't actually gonna gonna try and kill you and i was like i like to think that too but i'm not 100 <laughs> percent confident no <laughs> I don't want to leave it to chance. And the thing that makes a difference to me, the thing that makes me, that makes all of that manageable is the right support, is having mm. the right support and having support that I'm in control of. And I think that Biscuit, as my, you know, I've had ticks since I was a child, but they obviously they change and go up and down in the course of someone's life. And I think Biscuit, there was a point where they intensified and I, I had this idea that to be independent meant doing absolutely everything yourself. Biscuit. And then I read a piece of writing by a, a disabled comedian called Lawrence Clark in, in which he talked about biscuit independence, not be about being about doing everything yourself, but about being in control biscuit of your decisions mm. um, and ha- and knowing what support you needed to, 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 to achieve the things that you wanted. And that was, cha- like, like, that was life changing for me because yeah. 
it meant that I didn't have to make a cup of tea. I just needed to know that I was thirsty and, ha- and, and ask someone <laughs> to do it for me. Um, and that, and that I think that we, we're nobody is truly independent. We're all interconnected. Mm. But people do get very fixed on certain types of independence, particularly around, like, obsessed with what to say, exactly what disabled people can and can't do on their own. Yes. And I don't think that that's, I don't think that's quite, <laughs> particularly weeing and going to the toilet. It's like, that's not useful. I think, it, I think the more we talk about our interconnectedness and about the ways that, the ways that support opens up possibilities. Mm. Uh, I, like I am able to live and work and do a job, biscuit, that I love and enjoy and do well, biscuit, because I have skilled support. Yes. And because I have support that meets my requirements. But that always feels precarious. It always feels like it could be taken away at any moment, often biscuit based on the decisions of people who've never met me. Mm-hmm. And that that does give my work and life a certain urgency. And I think, you know, going back to, to not I, that it's a monologue that's delivered really fast. And it's, you know, it's there are lines where Math talks about the urgent need to tell. Biscuit. Mm. And and I do feel an urgent need to talk about my experiences as a disabled person because I feel that otherwise they're invisible often. And also because I feel I'm very aware that I could be, I could be written out, I could be turned off, I could be uh-huh. the breaking my support mm-hmm. would mean that I wouldn't be able to work and live in the way that I that I choose to and want to and um and I'm totally able to do. And so that definitely biscuit gives everything I do a sense of urgency. And I think that that's probably something that other dis- disabled people experience yeah. too. As you talk about it, Jess, Hedgehog. I know that I'm becoming aware that, in fact, my life Sir. is facilitated. It's just part of society. If I walk towards Sir. a door at a, at a supermarket, it opens for me. And they put nice little steps going up Sir. to it, which are perfect for me. Uh, all these things <laughs> yeah. are designed for yeah. me. They're absolutely yeah. not designed for you. And all we need to do is it's just a, it's a very small change, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's fundamentally taking an inclusive approach is the difference between assuming that we all do things in exactly the same way and understanding and leaving space for the fact that we need to do things differently. Mm -hmm. Uh, Biscuit and that benefits everybody. That's, I mean, I often say that sometimes it feels like the people who most Biscuit need to connect with disability culture are currently non-disabled people. Because if you, if as your life changes and your circumstances changes or your body or your mind change, if all that you've been exposed to is these sort of, non-disabled like ableist narratives they sort of then mm-hmm. it means that you that you have nothing to reach for right if you, if you, if your circumstances change whereas if you've been if you have seen and been part of communities where difference is supported and understood mm-hmm. you know that you that it it doesn't automatically mean that your life has to stop or that doing something in a different way biscuit has any sort of um embedded uh, imply you know automatic shame um and i think there are lots of there you know it's very easy to internalize ideas around being a problem or being a burden or bit like i can access some of those things really quickly mm-hmm. um but i have to actively work at, un, at undoing them and actively work at resisting yeah. resisting those ways of thinking that are also like really tied to like capitalism and the idea of what it means to be productive and valuable and we've got mm. all of these like intersecting systems yeah that that are shaping our world but often and and i think the pandemic is really interesting because i think that biscuit there was this moment where overnight society changed and the way that the society operated changed overnight because it was understood as being in everybody's best interest. It was being it was understood as necessary. Mm-hmm. 
that meant for me as a disabled person, the barriers I experienced overnight uh, changed too. And so all of the systems and strategies that I'd learned to deal with with this one system were suddenly, I had to change them. They were suddenly different. I couldn't access food in the same way and I couldn't access um, healthcare in the same way or I had to think about my care in a different way. So Mm. that was a big upheaval. But it also showed me that lots of the things, Biscuit, that we're taught are fixed and predictable and have to be that way. There's no other way. They have to be like that. They can't mm. change. It's too it's too ingrained. Actually, it can change on a 2P if they need to and can radically change. Like home working is something, and flexible working is something disabled people, this get have been asking for for generations and been told that it isn't possible for lots of jobs. Oh, can't do it. No way we can do <laughs> um, that. I've been identified as a clinically extremely vulnerable person so to COVID. So I have, right. you know, I've been shielding for two years. And mm. there's this idea, like I often see it over and over again, this idea that, Biscuit, you can protect the vulnerable by by them just like staying at home and let, let everybody else get on with their lives. And it's like this idea that we can hermetically seal anyone's life from other people <laughs> yes. just isn't a, re- isn't a reality. It's like we all live interconnected lives. Disabled people have children who go to school. Mm-hmm. You know, they're aunties and uncles, they're employees. They're like all of these different, lots of those narratives are so limiting, but they're really dangerous because they make us think of, they're dehumanising and they make us not realise that disability is just a natural part of life. Mm. and vulnerability is a natural part of life and the things that i am most vulnerable to medical vulnerability is a tiny thing tiny part of what makes me vulnerable mostly Mm. what i'm vulnerable to is systems and policies that haven't considered or considered me or don't value my life yes um which generally they would say they can't do because it's too expensive yeah and that's, yeah. that, to me, seems absurd because Biscuit. we can afford to do quite extraordinary things. Look at the last two years. So, and the expense of actually considering Head other of- people and their Biscuit. positions is, is tiny in comparison to what Biscuit. we've spent recently. But also, if you do it from the start, if you do it from, from the beginning, and if you use the knowledge of disabled people, mm-hmm. the generations of knowledge, then actually it doesn't have to be expensive. And, but the like, disability culture... So the art activism thinking that comes from the lived experience of barriers, that comes from people who have a different perspective on the world, is rich to biscuit, fuck, varied, exciting, challenging. And I think for me, discovering the disability art scene in the UK um, was one of the, was like transformational because it opened up my mind and challenged my own preconceptions about what was possible for me. Mm. Um, And sharing that with my non-disabled family and friends enabled us to have conversations that we hadn't we wouldn't have otherwise had no um biscuit it's really great to have the way that art can start conversations and that's what i feel is exciting about about art and theater and yeah and certainly about liz in a in a dustbin in a bin (laughs) it's fantastic idea (laughs) yeah liz in a bin so that's it liz in a bin that's the first (laughs) thing that's going in the time capsule without a doubt (laughs) jess so what's the second thing you'd like to put in Right, we're going to take a short break now for the traditional ads that occur on most podcasts. But that's how we pay the bills. So do bear with us. We'll be back with lots more from Jess in a very few moments. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
plushcare.com/weightloss I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me In a given month over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now save fifty percent on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power twenty twenty three award information, visit jdpower dot com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber dot com. Welcome back to the rest of the things that Jessica Tom, Tourette's hero, would like to put in her time capsule. The second thing I want to put in is adventure playgrounds. Mm-hmm. Um, biscuit. So um, adventure playgrounds. I grew up in London, and adventure play um, for people who don't know it, or for people who are outside the UK, is um, after the Second World War there was lots of bomb sites in London, and children started naturally playing on them, and mm. then lots of those turned into. Um, biscuit were turned into play spaces and non-precious play spaces. They were initially called junk playgrounds and that evolved to adventure playgrounds. And um, London has hundreds of them and Mm -hmm. they are non-precious, playful outdoor spaces that have uh, big structures and challenging and like kids can change them and build new things. And, um, and I, you know, Biscuit, I have, um, used adventure playgrounds as a kid, but also been a play worker working in adventure playgrounds, Biscuit, um, for all my adult life really. And I, Biscuit, and I started, studied art at Camberwell and alongside all of my creative education, I also worked as a play worker, as an inclusive play worker. So a play worker, an adventure playground that was for disabled and non-disabled, um, children. Mm -hmm. And I think that, Adventure play has been so important in my understanding of and in the way that I make art and in the way that I respond to to um, opportunities because there's there's something about taking risks and uh, and being challenged and experimenting that is really the spirit of, the, of adventure playgrounds. Mm. Um, uh, and I definitely feel that I've learned I learned a lot and I've sort of absorbed a lot that runs quite deep through yeah. me and. Um, biscuit working on playgrounds is you know is such a such a privilege but also for biscuit thinking about how you make those really challenging opportunities um accessible to disabled children and yeah. um we went i went to a um celebration of life event in september for a colleague of mine who worked at adventure playground who who died of covid last year and it was a huge loss to our community mm. um and i went to the to, we did a celebration of life in september uh, for children and adults and it was at an adventure playground in in stockwell and Biscuit, I saw a colleague, there were loads of things happening. It was really busy and lo- spaces of reflection and spaces of celebration. And I saw a colleague and a friend who has um, a six-year-old son who's a wheelchair user. And she had lost him at this event. And she was looking for him everywhere. Um, and when she found him, he was at the top of a massive structure. Wow. And I, it made me feel 
so excited and so proud. And it also was the legacy of the person who'd we'd lost, who had made that, his devotion to children and young people and to ensuring that those disabled children can escape their mums and can hide <laughs> and can go up high. Yeah. Like because he had his because he had thought about that space, that made that moment possible. Um and often disabled children have very have very clinical experiences. And you know, I'm a I'm a very proud auntie. I have a fat biscuit. I have a, a four-year-old niece and a and and a little nephew who's a baby. But when I take my niece to a playground, it's incredibly frustrating the limits on our on our play that the, the, the environments present. And, yeah. you know, there's, there's one, there's a playground near us that has one piece of accessible play equipment. It has a round, one accessible roundabout, <laughs> but it's like one roundabout does not make a playground. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so it goes both ways, doesn't it? So in fact, it's, yeah. it's, it's unfair to the disabled child. It's also unfair yeah. to the disabled parent who's taking an yeah. able-bodied child. Yeah. To, to... yeah. Non-disabled. I'd say non, I'd say, I'd say non-disabled. Non-disabled. Is that what I say? Uh, yeah. I'd say non-disabled. I tend to, I tend not to use able-bodied. Jess, you have to absolutely accept <laughs> you are talking to a 65 five-year-old man who's yeah, no, learning, no. learning, learning. Biscuit. I apologise. No, but I'll explain to you why. And, and lots of disabled people will use able-bodied, but I don't. Okay. And I don't use it. I don't use it for two reasons. Firstly, because um, disability isn't just about bodies. It's also about minds. So yeah. you will often hear me say bodies and minds because I think that that, that often, like there's often like historically there's a hierarchy around you know what considers you know what's a real disability or you know and and actually that's that's anyone who has experienced barriers because of how their body or mind works can choose to identify as disabled if they wish and for me there's power in that mm-hmm. because only if those barriers are acknowledged can they be can they be changed yeah um the other reason why i don't use um able bodied is because Disability, disability isn't the opposite of ability. Right. So, uh, so disability doesn't mean less able. I was aware of that as I said it, Jess. Yeah, it means, and, and and lots of things conflate the two, and it's a very. But actually, for me, through a social model understanding of um, uh, of disability, and the social model is a way of thinking about disability developed by disabled activists that says it's normal for bodies and minds mm. to work in different ways, and for some people. Um, to have impairments and others not. But what's disabling is a failure to consider that diversity of bodies and minds in the way that we set up set up the world. So as a disabled person, I'm not less able, but I am prevented from functioning mm-hmm. by society. Yes. One of the contributing factors must be people's reticence to, to talk Hedgehog, to you about biscuit. it because they don't understand it or because they don't know how to phrase things. That's a, and we've been made to think it's a dirty word. People are made to think that they can't say the word disabled because mm. it in some way diminishes people. Um, but actually, the, the brutal bit of disability is the barriers. The brutal bit is the the brutal bit is the exclusion and the and having to constantly advocate for your own humanity. There, that's the that, yeah. uh, that, you know that's the thing that's brutal. Yeah. But the only way that we solve that is by talking about it. Biscuit, if we don't talk about it, if we're frightened of talking about it, then you know we might as well you know there's there's never going to be any change. Absolutely. If we talk about it and and pull people up, it's like I do that with. I do that with love and care because I want people, and I particularly want people who are connected to and raising disabled children mm-hmm. to feel confident and and to be angry about the barriers and to be allies to those kids because that's what's gonna that's what makes a difference. Having an ally yeah. is so important, and not being not being in those battles on your own. No, and eventually Just we it. all become allies. 
if we understand it. But, but in my view, in my view, playgrounds is a great place to start because they're yeah. because they're fun and wild and being able to enjoy and time together and push your boundaries and experiment and do all of those things. And as adults, we sometimes we lose that connection with play. Mm. And I think that that's something that I feel like. I feel lucky that actually my brain and Tourette's is quite playful. It draws my attention to details in the world that I would never, biscuit, fuck, would never otherwise have noticed. Mm-hmm. Like that, you know, I have, I chat to the lamppost outside my bedroom window every <laughs> single night when I go to sleep. And it's like, I would never have noticed that if I wasn't, you know, if it wasn't for my unusual neurology, biscuit. But I think that, that, that having spaces where disabled and non-disabled children can play together and, uh, and, and see difference, understood and supported is really crucial having spaces in our community that are that center children that center that center playfulness mm. that center like learning and exploration just feels really like feels really exciting yeah um, now i'm one of those people who's of an age <laughs> and brought up in london who as a boy played on all those bomb sites yeah. and so i know exactly what you're <laughs> talking about but basically we had to sort of force our way through corrugated iron we'd <laughs> find a gap and get in there and then we'd have great fun they were lethal yeah. places but they were brilliant fun but so how how so, did that process happen was it just local communities doing it yeah, yeah, and 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 a movement that grew up around that, and I think that I think that that says something really beautiful to me about like a moment of like shared trauma and destruction, and like the sort of the legacy of war mm-hmm. that physically is present and 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 has shaped our city. Yeah, but it is also creativity, energy, playfulness, community has. Found, like has claimed those spaces and has has made what could be scars into this like legacy of hundreds of play spaces across London. Brilliant. And and Biscuit and you know the adventure playground movement is like always always feels like precarious and under threat because of how children are valued because of how play is valued because of it's like I just constantly get frustrated. It's like it's so like having to sort of demonstrate and describe why players like of mm-hmm. what like having to list the outcomes of play and of course there are many like there are many benefits but also it's like that's about it's about what children need to do and I think it's about what we all need to do we need space to explore and experiment in ways that are led that are led by our interests that are led by something that isn't like a set of rules like it's so they're different spaces from schools they're different places from from where you're where you're guided through things those those places have importance and a place where a child gets a sense that they're actually taking a risk yeah they're pushing themselves yeah it's it's very important for children to do that i think yeah we uh we we used to have something on the rotor at one of the playgrounds which was called supervised danger um (laughs) (laughs) and 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 it's i think it's particularly important for disabled children because it's very easy for to want to protect kids and to want, but but we don't protect children by not teaching them about risk mm. and helping them understand and weigh up and test and find learn about themselves, uh, but in ways that are adventure playgrounds are different from static sort of council playgrounds because they're also they're supervised. Yeah. They're, adventure playgrounds are universally supervised by play workers and they have people on them who are whose job it is not just to supervise but to support and nurture play mm. uh, and all children need that need those opportunities to 
to play in risky, extravagant, hmm. adventurous ways. Yeah. So I would definitely put them in the time capsule. It's a very, very <laughs> lovely thing to put in. I have to say that uh, when I was when I was young, those places were dangerous, but that was mm. what was exciting about them. But, and uh, without a doubt, the people who owned the land and the council Petr- would not want us to be there. They were Petr- constantly coming yeah. around and saying, "Oi, off!" You know, a copper would stick his head through and say, "You lot out!" Yeah. And they, their yeah. argument was, "Well, you've got a park." We've provided you. There yeah. are swings. And you go, yeah, but yeah. they're not fun. This is fun. They quickly get boring. They quit those things quickly get boring. It's also interesting, you know, in our me and my niece in our one in our one roundabout park that we can mm. only the only thing we can do together. It's like <laughs> neither of us really like roundabouts. Like no. neither of us really enjoy it. It's like we're only doing this because it's the one thing we can do together. <laughs> it makes you so feel I'm, sick. I biscuit <laughs> Yeah, at the moment I'm quite I'm I've I'm quite interested in blowing her mind and thinking like, all right, you've you're four, you're used to this playground now. What can we do to it to make it exciting? Uh, um, yeah. <laughs> Very good. So um how do we make it an adventure playground? Yeah, exactly. Indeed. And without a doubt, it is the greatest thing to say to any child. Petr- Let's have an adventure. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And and I would argue that that's that's not just for children. Like we no. all need adventures. Like, oh gosh, after two years of uh shielding in my home, like one of the things that's interesting is how is how little something needs to be for me to now consider it an adventure. <laughs> <laughs> Like, it was really interesting that, like, especially after the first lockdown, when I felt like after a, like, really intense period of very rigorous shielding, like, pre-vaccine, when the risks, you know, the stakes were really high. Mm. But then it suddenly, like, just going around, like, just going around my block suddenly felt like a, like a massive adventure, like a massive, <laughs> like, I needed much less. Yes. I'd be overstimulated for days just by biscuit, you know, popping around the corner. And it was like that, it was really interesting that that, that, like, how it changes how it recalibrated what I needed from the world and what's what what I needed to feel satisfied and content. Mm-hmm. It's you know I'd, we'd been in we you know in January Fat Biscuit twenty twenty we'd been with in New York with not I and we'd been sort of and we'd been touring you know nationally and internationally and then mm. so suddenly to go from that to to you know I, to just being in Peckham which I love but like to yeah. just being in my house and to just being in like four rooms it was a very you know, there, lots of that was really challenging, but it was also there were elements of that that were adventurous and that like recalibrated and changed biscuit my relationship with my surroundings mm. and my expectations of the world in really interesting ways. Yeah, but, yes, it was a strange ketchup. time, and and it's also interesting because it's like lots of people talk have talked about like I've heard lots of people talk about touch and like really like noticing or the absence of touch. But obviously, as a disabled person who needs quite close physical support and has, you know, I have 24-hour support, so I have people mm-hmm. with me all the time, and they need to physically touch me and help me move. And so I didn't straightforwardly have that absence of touch, but it was there was, a, there was an absence of a type of touch. And the moment where my niece sort of climbed on my lap and we sat like we sat and moved together on on my chair which is her favorite way her favorite way to move I don't I don't think it's occurred to her that she could walk next to me um, yet there's going to be a point where I have to introduce that as a concept because <laughs> you're 21 it's time yeah, you yeah, get 21. off 21 <laughs> yeah but it, but it was that there there was something about the closeness of that like there was something yeah. about different types of like suddenly understanding the different types of touch and feeling like connected to that in different ways. Yes, and there are some things that still haven't quite come back. Fuck. Uh, the other day, I upset myself saying goodbye to my grandchildren and giving them a great big hug, Fuck. but they're still in a situation where there's a lot of COVID about. Mm-hmm. So we're still being cautious, and it is sort of now two years since I I kissed my grandchildren. Yeah. 
Yeah, and that was an absolutely yeah. regular part yeah. of saying goodbye to them. And that stopped. And and yeah. I wonder if it will come back. For, yeah. I live next, pretty much next door to my sister and her family. And Biscuit, I would, I would see my niece, who was two and a half at the start of the pandemic. Biscuit. For, I would see her all the time, every day. And then, so my sister's a doctor, so and I'm clinically vulnerable. So we couldn't have that closeness. No. And so we had to develop and invent new ways biscuit of staying connected so we we developed these new rut- routines and one of the new routines that we had was my niece was beca- like um would be really focused on like picking what i had in my bath <laughs> uh, or, or what i washed with each night and yeah. i had like she would like make those choices for me mm. and biscuit in her mind she needed to make those choices for me because i don't you know i'm being you know i wouldn't make those choices without her but it gave <laughs> us this really intimate new thing that we would do together and you know i also would draw her treasure maps and they, so it was like there were losses mm. but there were also these changed it was also like all right what's the thing What's the thing in that that matters? And it does matter, like that closeness, physical closeness, connection, the moment of goodbye and and hello, the, those transitions of welcome and uh, and parting, mm-hmm. and and finding new ways to do them is difficult. And there are things that can be that can feel like losses, but then we can also discover things, biscuit, at the same time. And those discoveries um, also are sort of adventurous yes. adventures. Adventures Fuck. in the great big adventure yeah. playground of life. Yeah. Well, fantastic. Well, we, yeah, <laughs> we shall put adventure playgrounds into the time capsule for you, Jess. Right. As your second item. Yeah. Right. Okay. We're moving on to number three. Fuck. Uh, number three is the alchemy of chaos. Right. Explain. Biscuit. <laughs> the alchemy of chaos was the title of a um, a tick title. So it was a biscuit. My, you know, my ticks are very good at coming up with titles. Also, <laughs> if uh, anyone who's listening, good at band names, album album names, and we have a whole list of over six thousand of them on the Tourette's Hero website. So you know, <laughs> part of that part of that very first idea that Matthew Biscuit sort of introduced me to that idea of Tourette's as a language generating machine, Biscuit, yeah. and the idea of like not wasting those ideas. And uh, so we started recording them and then using them as catalysts for other people's creativity. Mm. And so the Alchemy of Chaos was a tick that gave the title to a TED talk biscuit that I gave in 2013. Biscuit at the Royal Albert Hall um, in front of 4,000 people. And it was the the first time, really, that I'd got on a proper stage. Um, I'd sort of done some stuff, playful stuff at festivals. Yeah, ease yourself in. Why don't you? Biscuit, ease myself (laughs) in. And it was, Biscuit, it was the most, um, it was... Like it was incredibly daunting because at that point I hadn't, I wouldn't have considered myself a performer. Biscuit, what I had done was work on adventure playgrounds. And if you can hold the attention, Biscuit, of 60 children at circle time who don't have to be there, you can hold the, atta- uh, you can hold the attention of a group of adults who've chosen to be somewhere. Yeah, 4,000, <laughs> easy, It's what I've learned. Um, uh, biscuit, but, but so the first thing that I really remember about that was like this opportunity to speak about... Um, about my experiences and to speak about the power of art and creativity and how biscuit how the sort of impact that thinking about disability and linking and cre- and cre- and linking that to creativity and, and and really embracing everyday creativity in my life um that talking about the impact of that mm. but in the biscuit uh but in the sort of preparation the people who were organizing the event came and sort of did a practice with me um I was very you know it's the first time I was doing any sort of serious public speaking and I didn't know how didn't know how I would do I didn't know how my tics would respond I didn't know you know I had at that point I had no idea what it would physically do to my body or 
uh, biscuit. So they came and did this practice and, you know, we were delivering the thing. During it, I just kept ticking about Thatcher's cunt. (laughs) And I was like... We've and all had to their that. credit, because <laughs> there is this element of saying the worst thing in any given situation. And to their credit, I was really worried that they would be like, "Okay, mate, I don't, I don't think this is right for you." But actually, they, in fairness, they didn't bat an eyelid. No. And um, I went and did that, and I, and I didn't, I didn't, I didn't talk about Thatcher. I did say some other stuff, and, um, biscuit, and it was, it was an incredible. It was the most terrifying biscuit and exhilarating experience of my life and the 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 noise that four thousand people make and in that space the like it feels like it's huge but it feels very intimate when you're on stage it's like it's like an awesome space i've been there i've stood on that stage and it's amazing i was so glad that i'd stood on the stage before i went out to speak because it biscuit my biscuits echoed back at me in a really like in an I am echolalic, and so it was like, oh, I'm in a biscuit loop now. Uh, biscuit, ketchup, and it was definitely oh, one God. of those moments where I was aware that, like, because with TED talks, you're not allowed to have any notes; you have to just mm. speak, and all you've got on stage in front of you is a sort of clock, red clock, counting down the time till you till you you've done you're done. Wow. Um, biscuit, uh, and I'm aware that other people have, you know, it does do something physical to you like my you know my mouth went very dry yeah, it's like, yeah. oh, this is, there's a physical impact of this on your body that you know is unexpected if that's not something that's familiar to you mm. and I could see that on other people but and lots of other people that you know they would have these moments of silence while they were trying to remember their remember their, what they were saying and I was like oh, I don't I don't have to worry about that because <laughs> um biscuits give me some time I just throw in some biscuits so um biscuit but it was um it was an absolutely incredible experience and it sowed the seed for me wanting to be knowing that that was something that I was interested in doing. And, and in fairness, like talking about my life and explaining my life as someone with Tourette's didn't, doesn't always feel like a choice. Biscuit, you know, I, I'm having those conversations at work with children. I'm having those conversations on buses, in shops, in supermarkets. Uh, 20 Biscuit. times a day, I should imagine. Yeah. Biscuit, if I can do them on stage to 4,000 people or on TV, we can hit a lot more people at the same time. Mm-hmm. And uh, Biscuit, and so actually... It felt like a really natural extension. So something that I enjoyed and something that was also felt like a tool for living. It's yes. like I mean, it occurs to me the number of times a day you must have to say to people, look, I have to rest, and then explain what it is and what's going to happen yeah. and what they're going to Biscuit. experience. I've got, yeah, it yeah. It must be so Biscuit. dull. Biscuit. <laughs> well, I've got, I, it's very automatic. I've got three things that I say to people at the start of every meeting, which is you're going to hear the words biscuit and head chocolate. Biscuit, if I say something funny, you're allowed to laugh. And several times a day, my tics intensify uh, and I completely lose control of my body, which looks seizure-like. So, and, and at that point I have to stop. Um, mm. But it's also important for people to know that because if I haven't told them, like I haven't told you and that happens, yes. and then it's frightening it's frightening for people and it's like unnerving whereas if I say that's normal for me it looks dramatic but don't worry then it takes it takes the fear it takes the panic out and Mm. and biscuit there was a long time where I didn't feel like my approach was like don't say anything and no one will notice (laughs) of course people notice um but actually you know allowing space for openness there is also you know it's the balance is tricky and it doesn't always feel like a choice. And I do get asked some very invasive questions and it, that can be, you know, that I, I, cho- I can choose whether to answer them mm-hmm. or not, but, um, but it can be quite draining that constant need to explain yeah, I think how sure. other people respond can make a difference. And it's, um, it's silly, but if I, you know, every time I speak to somebody I don't know on the phone, I'll always say, you know, biscuit, just to let you know, I've got Tourette's syndrome, which means I make movements and noises. I can't control cortex. And, Sometimes people will say, 
don't worry. And I'm like, mm. I'm not telling you because I'm worried. It's like, I've, <laughs> I've got this. I'm telling you because you need to know that I'm not really hungry. Biscuit. But the, um, <laughs> um, biscuit. And, so, and, and, and sometimes people will laugh the moment they hear the word Tourette. So lots of people will like let out an involuntary titter. And I think that it's because we have been conditioned to not expect disabled people or you know, people with Tourette's to be the people who are phoning us up, to be our customers, to be our teachers, mm-hmm. to be our, um, to have those roles within our, within our communities. That was interesting. The first time I went to Edinburgh, um, Biscuit with a show it was in 2015 and we took a show, um, Biscuit, backstage in Biscuit and, uh, and I'd, you know, I saw more theatre in two weeks in Edinburgh than I'd seen in my life mm. up until that point. But Biscuit, but the first night I went with the co-performer Jess Mabel Jones to see um, Mark Watson perform. Yeah, um, Biscuit, and we had you know we had passes for the venue and and various reasons I hadn't been able to speak to him directly myself to explain beforehand. So the first fifteen minutes. I think it's fair to say it through him. Um, and the first 15 minutes was quite an intense Q&A between me and Mark about Tourette's, which was, which was intense. And, yeah, and but was, he would be fascinated by it. That's the sort of performer he is, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and, and I've, he knows that, you know, I know him now and I've, we've chatted loads and I, don't, I think he would feel comfortable with me talking about this. But one of the things that I remember him saying that really stuck with me was he said, like, oh, you, perf- you know, as a comedian, Biscuit, you prepare for... Uh, stag do's and you prepare for hecklers and you prepare for drunk people but you know I've you never I've never prepared for someone with Tourette's and my first response was like why not <laughs> why do we assume that we go to the theatre or to a comedy gig and we're not going to be sitting next to someone with Tourette's mm-hmm. or Down syndrome or autism like that it's those those assumptions other things that we need to yeah. to challenge. And, and it says way more about the audience and the audiences in those places and who's welcome than it does about, um, you know, people with particular impairments. Yes. Fat. But you've also got something else to teach people through <laughs> uh, through the anarchy of chaos. I mean, I alchemy think... Alchemy of chaos, yeah, yeah, I yeah. Don't say alchemy of chaos. Hedgehog. Without a doubt, it's a method that is used by many people as a creative Fat. method. I, I yeah. would cite, for example, Fat. David Bowie. David Bowie would write Hedgehog. lots of words, cut it all up, Hedgehog. and put the words all over the floor yes. as a way of yeah, creating yeah. his lyrics. Yeah. And you can see that again and again. Yeah, and and, and so... so and, it, and, it, and it goes that thing that we thing that seems chaotic, Biscuit, seems disruptive, also has the potential to have a creative energy. And Biscuit, some of the most interesting creative projects I've worked on, um, there's one, there was one very early on where Biscuit, we, fuck Biscuit, we didn't ignore the ticks, we didn't interview, but we we let the ticks lead the narrative and drive the narrative and just trust, believed and went with whatever they said. So, hedgehog, Biscuit, cats, t- Donkey Kong. So if I talked about Donkey Kong, we would then chat about it. And it was really interesting <laughs> what happens if you, Biscuit, if you don't try and like plough on with my with my thoughts, but you follow that that line. Mm. And um, and the, um, Biscuit, the other sort of experiment that I find really interesting sometimes is Biscuit, as a writer, when I'm writing is not differentiating between ticked language, Biscuit and chosen language and like mixing them up and not necessarily like oh, we've written these short plays about about the sort of about my relationship with the lamppost but I quite like them <laughs> because we don't differentiate between what's what was what's what's been rooted in ticks and what's been rooted in in choice mm-hmm. and also we don't none of them really mentioned they don't they're not about Tourette's but they couldn't exist without it they are of 
my brain. Yes. But they but they don't they're not educative. They don't explain it. They just wouldn't exist. They wouldn't be without it. Um, and I had a I had this amazing conversation once with um, Nina Conti and Monkey, and I thought it was going to be a, con- a conversation between me and Nina about like creativity and the gatekeeper of the mind and like how ventriloquism and how Monkey unlocks her gatekeeper mm-hmm. uh, and how Tourette's unlocks mine. Actually. Nina and I were fairly irrelevant in the conversation and it was a conversation between my tics and monkey. Um, and it was, and it was fascinating. And there were yeah. things afterwards where Nina watched it back and she was like, Oh, don't use that. bit. I can't believe he said that. And it was like, Oh, you didn't like, those are things like in that moment where, which is definitely the same relationship I have with something like yeah. tick surprised me, but I also don't notice all of them and I won't remember them. So. Yes. But- you see that in her act, don't you? That sometimes she absolutely looks surprised. Mike, what? You can't say that to people. <laughs> and that's not an act. She's genuinely Petr- surprised at what's coming out of her own brain and out of her Petr- mouth. It's yeah. it's almost but, involuntary. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, it's really interesting. I think I find it really interesting having those conversations with people who have made spontaneity a big part of their life and performance because, for me, it was something that I ignored for a long time and mm. I've had to learn to value it. There is an absolute alchemy there as well, without a doubt. It's a very good way of creating. I know lots of creative groups. There's an advertising Petro- group in America who are very famous Petro- for write the most famous adverts. They write them by sitting in a room and Petro- just Biscuit. riff. You just riff. yeah. Yeah. And in a way, you're riffing in the most free form possible. Hedgehog, biscuit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and so lots of people will say, oh, you know, did you train yourself to say biscuit instead of swearing? Or like, you know, <laughs> or like, oh, you're lucky it's biscuit and not a rude word. Firstly, biscuit, pre-biscuit, my regular ticks were pony cunt uh, and uh, Tony Blair socks cock through his tiny mouth. So, you know, it's not all biscuits and hedgehogs. No. But, the, but, but anything I've ever known or experienced has the potential to become a tick. Mm. I don't get to choose those things. I don't know what they are. Biscuit, there are definitely things that I've said as ticks biscuit that I've had to look up like I haven't I've been like I have no idea and I chat a lot about Alan Hansen and I had no idea who he was <laughs> amazing <laughs> uh, yeah. I am learning so much on this I can't Sausage. tell you I feel like um I feel like an idiot <laughs> that I don't know it that I've gone this long in my life without knowing it it's extraordinary biscuit but we shall move on Petrol. from the wonderful alchemy of chaos and put that into your time capsule and move to your Biscuit. fourth item. So you've got two left. So my fourth thing that I'm going that I'm cherishing and putting in my time capsule is my profiling bed. So that is a hospital style electric bed that goes up and down, that tips in all sorts of directions. It's a single bed. Mm-hmm. Um, Biscuit. And when the occupational therapist first suggested that I might benefit from having a having a bed that that I could move so I could change position to so biscuit to sort of particularly to manage pain and to mean that I could, yeah, that I, that I could be more comfortable mm. and use less energy in terms of moving around biscuit. I was really like, I was really reluctant. I think I had like, and it, you know, I had, I felt, I felt very concerned that if I had a single bed, my room would turn into some sort of monastic chamber <laughs> that somehow it was a sign of like, was that somehow saying I was always going to sleep on my own? Like I felt very worried about that. And it was almost like, I knew that the council wouldn't do those beds in doubles. <laughs> um, so I, my instinct was to resist, but I, at that point, and occupational therapists are amazing because it's, it's, they are very practical and pragmatic. And so their role is to, to think about what your life is and what your home is and what you do and how what things and tools and practical interventions mm. that can make a difference. And I'm a big fan of a of a practical intervention. Biscuit. And you know, I think there's a lot of emphasis. Sometimes it's very easy to try and think about like 
tackling things on a neurological level or on a sort of medical level, actually some of the things that make a difference are just the things that make life more comfortable or manageable and mm-hmm. um, biscuit. And so, and again, um, a friend of mine said um, when I was being resistant, they were like, well, why don't you try it? And if you don't, if it, you know, cause I was like, I don't think it's that bad yet. Maybe in a few years time. They're like, what if it's amazing? What if you, well, if you don't say yes and you, you've had two years of discomfort that you didn't have to have, and yeah. I was like, all right, I'll try it. I'm not going to get rid of the double bed, but I'll try it and see how I feel. Um, I'd given the double bed away within days. Because <laughs> um, it's amazing. And, cause it, and, and I very quickly stopped worrying about how big it was and uh, being excited by how comfortable it was. And also the benefit of having a single bed is that you get to access children's bedding, which is way more exciting and colourful <laughs> and interesting than what adults get. Uh, and and also I I was really worried that I wouldn't that it's like oh that this would mean that I wasn't able to cuddle in bed that I wouldn't have that intimacy mm. one of the things I totally overlooked was the fact that the bed means that I can lift myself right up so I can sit on the edge and lift my upset to, I can lift myself up to the height of full standing height of other people and have a proper cuddle of course so actually yeah. um while it it gets crowded with me and my four-year-old niece and the cat in there at once it's like <laughs> that's a lot of different requirements to manage um it has it has given me sleep and it's given me comfort and it's given me the power to to control and change my environment to mm in a way to meet my requirements and that is really powerful and i and i think that there are lots of aids and tools like wheelchairs are really really suffer from a from an image problem because lots of people see them as symbols of restriction and and limitation and uh, you know the worst thing in the world would be to be a wheelchair user wheelchair users love their chairs mm. they're liberators <laughs> they're free they're, it's they give me it gives me freedom and i'm a wheelchair geek um and i think that that's i hate the idea that anyone is being put off using a tool or using any tools biscuit that might make their life easier or more comfortable because of preconceptions about what other people would think or what that means mm-hmm. um and I'm, I'm not still and like it had the profiling bed wasn't a beautiful thing. It had these um, like fake wood, like very hospitally fake woods, like yeah. very institutional ends. But I'd <laughs> broken one by my, my my legs moving against it. I had, you know, I'd kicked it and so it broke. So we got rid of that and we've replaced it with um, colourful perspex. So at one end I have this amazing burnt orange perspex and on the other I have dark blue. So it's like in the morning I look up, I wake up and I'm looking, it's like looking at a sunset and then I have the mm. I have the sort of, the night time behind me. And so it it's also about thinking about how colour and tools and how things look and feel does make a difference. Mm. Um but uh but yeah I'm putting my profiling bed in there because it is because it's brilliant, but also because I I I want other people to know that that they should say yes to things and try tools yes. and not put off using something yes. that might transform things for you. And that's Biscuit. people in all situations, isn't Fair. it? My mother-in-law lives with us Fair. and uh, she has she has mobility difficulties. Fair. And we bought her Petra. a mobility scooter, but she just found it too frightening. Yeah. You know, is it stable? Yeah. And she stopped using it. Yeah. She gets on all right. But Fair. what it's done is it the possibility of going further than she can walk is yes. taken away from yeah. her. And it's a shame. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I... I, I I've recently got an attachment for the a power attachment for the front of my wheelchair that turns my wheelchair from a sort of manual chair into a trike biscuit. And it is just like the, <laughs> I, yeah, I've been able to go for runs with people yeah, uh, where I can like, I can go fast and they can go fast. And it's like this, it opens up 
it opens up walks and places and going distances that mm. I yeah that I had become closed off. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Fat. So people can so, embrace those. I, I completely fat. agree with you. So we'll take the profile bed and um, and we'll put it into the time yeah. capsule. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's going to get. I mean, it's getting quite crowded in there with the adventure playground as well, and the and Liz in a bin. Um, I hope she's happy in the corner. Yeah. <laughs> so the last thing is something you'd like to get rid of. I would like to get rid of austerity politics. I'd like to get rid of austerity politics and I'd like to get rid of the damage that it's done. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that particularly like, you know, people will talk a lot at the moment about the damage of COVID and the impact of COVID, but they forget that that's coming on top of a decade of austerity politics, yeah. of cutting, of removing the safety net in our in our society and biscuit and of cutting local authorities and cutting services mm. to 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 the to the bone and living in a world and living in a society that has stripped everything to a minute like to the bare minimum means that there's no there's no space and there's no room for things to for things for things to fail and for things to be de- you know for things to be difficult and no. for for people to be protected in those circumstances and i think and it is a thing that started with um well i'm going to say it, margaret thatcher's cunt yes <laughs> yeah dusty cunt it, uh, it started with that because <laughs> that whole concept of our economy being like a shopping basket you wouldn't spend Petrol. more than you had in your purse it's absurd Biscuit. that a great economy would run that way and the idea that we don't have a duty to look out for each other mm-hmm. and to look after each other and that we and biscuit and that we prioritize things over people yes. and we prioritize money over people and you look at what that's like you look at what's that what that's driven the fact that you know thousands of people are living in homes that are wrapped in flammable products because people were prioritizing money and profit over people and community and mm-hmm. safety and life mm. and that, that and that and and biscuit and it's overwhelming the thing about austerity that felt really difficult to live through is it was like it was coming from every single angle and it's like that's it's really hard to know how you tackle how you protest how you protect how can we how can we build inclusive communities if we're just fighting to hold on to the real basics mm. and and the people who are most at risk at that and that and I'm particularly you know working in the play sector and working with disabled children it's like very aware that there is a whole generation of disabled biscuit children and young people who have grown up under austerity politics mm-hmm. who have grown up with battles for basic e- equality of education of social care of being able to go out you know i'm a i have social care and you know that i have to answer questions about you know i sat with a social worker who told me that 45 minutes was too long for an evening meal to prepare and eat an evening meal it's like <laughs> i mean i don't know how long it's taking everyone else but it doesn't seem like it's that ex- particularly extravagant um <laughs> but it's like having to like what that way of thinking has done to us all and to the places that we live And particularly to the opportunities of like, you know, for a long time, I think there was a general feeling that as a disabled person, you could see things progressing and you could be like, all right, it's not perfect. There are still barriers. It's really hard. But, Mm -hmm. but each generation there that we are, we are moving in the right direction and the opportunities are opening rather than closing. I definitely think that we have a generation of young people who've grown up under austerity, who are worse off as disabled people than than the generation that I am. And that as someone who, like, I care about disability culture, I care about 
um, my community. I care about art and culture. Where is the next generation of disabled artists going to come from if young people, Biscuit, can't even leave their homes? Mm-hmm. And there are some like horrendous statistics about... Um, there's a group called Coventry Youth As- Activists, who are an amazing group of young disabled people, activists in Coventry, who've, who've done a load of research and, and a campaign around the fact that there's loads of young disabled people who don't get to go out on a Saturday. They don't get to leave their homes to do anything outside of their homes on a Saturday. And it's like, we need to be opening young people's worlds mm-hmm. and minds and building community and connection. Biscuit. But austerity is the enemy of that. The problem is that whole idea of austerity comes entirely from one small niche view of economics. And I don't understand how it became absolutely prevalent and also accepted as the only way. We've absolutely decimated all sorts of charitable organisations, but things that are crucial. And the cost of that is so much greater than servicing a debt cost. Yeah, but also the long-term... Oh, absolutely, the long-term effect. Long-term, there are no savings. Long-term, no. we're not investing in, in the futures of our communities. And it's like, it's a short... It's a risky, And some, you know, some of that is because of the political systems are going to mm-hmm. look short-term and they're going to look at the immediate bit of time. But the damage is huge and there yeah. are other options and there are other systems. And, and, and then and we need to... We, whenever we're thinking about the barriers that we want to bring down, we also need to think about mm-hmm. what we want to protect and nurture at the same time. Biscuit. And it's very easy to just to 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 just fight, but we also need to build. Yes. Um, and I think that um, yeah, I I will I would hap- I would very very be very very keen to put austerity politics and all the damage it's done in the ground. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But- I yeah. will put that bloody austerity politics <laughs> into the time capsule and yeah. bury it deep in the ground. Yeah, deep. And don't water it. <laughs> don't grow it. <laughs> oh, Jess, it's been fantastic to talk to you. It's been, Biscuit. I'm ashamed to say, it's been an absolute education for me. I feel I should have known everything you were talking about a long time ago. Hedgehog. But what a brilliant Biscuit. person you are. Bless you. Biscuit, well, thank you for thank you for having me and for, yeah, for g- giving me an opportunity to think about is such a great challenge uh, to, th- to think about and to reflect on. So, lovely. Yeah, thank you. Biscuit. Go Biscuit. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton Stevens, and my guest, Jessica Tom. If you'd like to learn more about Jess's work and ways that you can get involved, then do have a look at the links we have with this episode. And if you enjoyed it, then do subscribe, rate and review the podcast, which helps enormously to raise our profile, I promise you, and attract others who've not heard of my time capsule to have a listen. Poor things. You can also tweet about it or mention it on Instagram or Facebook, where you'll find me and my time capsule, so do tag us in and follow us. It's always nice to hear from listeners. And if you like the theme tune by Pass the Peas Music, it's available on Spotify. This was a cast-off production for Acast, produced by John Fenton Stevens. Right, I'm going to watch a bit of telly. Yeah, it's not as relaxing as it sounds. You see, I noticed a 50-inch plasma TV in my local Currys for £10. Yeah, £10. <laughs> I said to the man in the shop, £10? What's wrong with it? He said it's stuck on full volume. I thought, you can't turn that down. Now, where are those earplugs? Bye. Bye. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 